Okay, good morning, everybody. If we could keep Genesis uh, chapter 16 open in front of us, that would be great, on page 11. That'll help us as we go through as we refer to that. And here's the key question uh, for this morning as we kick off. Um, how quickly do we look to God when things aren't working out? How quickly do we look to God when things aren't working out? This morning, we're going we're to meet two women um, who are facing really difficult situations in their lives. Both of them at breaking point in different ways because of the suffering that they're facing. One is desperate to have a child but cannot have one. And the other is subject to abuse at the hands of those who have power over her. Both women face really difficult situations in their lives. And the key difference between them is their posture towards God in those difficult experiences. First, we'll meet Sarai. Now, she accuses God because of her difficulties. And she fails to see God at work in her life. And next, we're going to meet Hagar. Now, she looks to God in her difficulties really hard difficulties. And she recognizes the God who sees her and the God who cares for her. And so she listens to God and she praises him despite her difficulties. So as we begin um, to explore the different responses of Sarai and Hagar, let's just first remind ourselves of where we've got to, where we left Abraham and Sarai in our last sermon. God had just reconfirmed his covenant to Abraham in chapter 15. It seemed like a real high note, didn't it, in the, in the narrative so far? Johnny was reminding us last week of how big those promises to Abraham are. He's showing himself to be the I will God that we've been thinking about through the whole series so far. But as we're going to see in our reading, according to verse 3, Abraham's now lived in Canaan for 10 years. And if you look down at verse 1, it'll set up the narrative for today that Sarai is still not pregnant. It's an agonizing situation for Abram and Sarai, because no matter how much their I will God reassures them of his promise to bless them through their offspring, it just doesn't seem to be happening for them. It just doesn't seem to be happening. You can imagine them beginning to wonder, what is God playing at? Promising big, but they're not visibly delivering. You can imagine them beginning to get anxious and the confusion beginning to arise in their minds, perhaps even bitterness towards God who is not delivering on his promise. Indeed, Abraham and Sarai's concerning posture towards God, it's really highlighted by the scarce mention of the Lord in the first six verses of our reading. If you to look down there, you'll see the Lord mentioned twice. He's mentioned in order to blame him for the situation and then the second time, as Sarai hypocritically calls down God's judgment on Abram, the whole thing is a real mess. The Lord is not inquired of or addressed in the reading we've just had. And that should tell us something about Abram and Sarai's posture towards God in these moments. If the Lord is to blame for my childlessness, thinks Sarai, then I'll need to take matters into my own hands. That's a common theme for Sarai taking matters into her own hands in this reading. Verse 2, if you look down there, go into my servants, 
It may be that I shall obtain children by her, or more literally, we might say that I might be built up by her. So right, she has this plan to be built up into the great nation that God has promised she will be. She thinks that she might be able to get the child she desperately wants through her servant, Hagar. And initially, it looks like the plan's going to work. Verse 4, And Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, if we're tempted to, to judge this by modern standards, it's worth knowing that this type of surrogate practice of using a servant to bear a child for a master, it wasn't unusual in Sarai and Abram's day. Abram and Sarai, they don't think they're doing something morally detestable here. They're just doing the thing which to them seems culturally acceptable and normal. This is the culturally normal alternative given that God's plan A doesn't seem to be coming through. And that's the problem we're meant to spot. It's the lack of trusting God's plan A again. Now, we could uh, read straight on into verse 4, and we can show that that plan wasn't a good plan, because we're going to see what happens. We see the car crash itself unfold. But let's just pause and just spend a bit more time in the first three verses and just see the danger signs lurking in Sarai's actions. Um, Listen to verse 2 again. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar from earlier in Genesis? You think back? Try this. Um, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. So again, a little echo of Genesis 3 from the fall at the beginning of Genesis. Uh, how about this? Sarai, Abram's wife, uh, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram. Eve took of the fruit of the tree and ate and gave some to her husband who ate with her. Genesis 3, again, can you spot the the repeated themes in there, comparing the fall of humankind in Genesis 3 to what is happening in the reading we've got today? Uh, In both cases, you have this female figure who takes something and gives it to the husband, or the something or the someone in this case, to the husband, who then passively listens to the voice of the wife and receives what God has not blessed. That repeated pattern of Genesis. We're going to read this account of Abram and Sarai and we're meant to be thinking back to the Garden of Eden all over again with Adam and Eve. That same pattern of fundamentally questioning God's plan and questioning God's promise and questioning God's word. It's happening all over again. Um, And if we needed further evidence to confirm that this is not a good plan, the author of Genesis um, has given us lots of danger signs. Um, Verse 1, Sarai is Abram's wife. Verse 3, Sarai is Abram's wife. Does that sound familiar? Because it should, because about four weeks ago when I stood up here and preached in chapter 12 of Genesis, we highlight this exact same language used in the Egypt mess when they went into Egypt and there was that whole mess with Sarai being given over to another man. Sarai is Abram's wife, and therefore Hagar is not. This might have been common cultural practice in the day. It might have been what was normal and acceptable in the culture, but it was not God's way. 
And the author of Genesis is wanting to make that really clear to us. This is not God's way. And you can add to that repeated identifiers as Hagar is the servant. She's not the wife. And Hagar is the Egyptian. So she's not one of Abraham's kindred. She's not from Abraham's country. That's very important in Genesis. The author's flashing big red warning lights for us here. This is not a good plan. The bottom line, it seems to be that Sarai, she cannot see the Lord at work in her afflictions and in her waiting. Much like Eve couldn't see God at work in his command to her in the garden. It's that lack of trusting God's work in that prohibition. And Sarai, she can only see the Lord as the one causing the problems rather than the one who knows her and the one who loves her, and the one who sees everything that's going on in her life. She can't see the Lord as the one who sees and hears everything, and the one who is working out his big purpose for achieving all of his promises. So because Sarai fails to see the Lord at work, she reenacts the Garden of Eden all over again. And then we come to the car crash in verse 4. Now, in the face of a sinful turning away from God, human order begins to crumble. We know that's true, and it's no exception here. Let's hear verses 4 to 6 read again. If you look down at verses 4 to 6, when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And so I went to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to you, do to her as you please. And so Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. So pregnant Hagar now looks down on contempt on her mistress And then the situation becomes utterly ridiculous because Sarai, whose plan this was in the first place, she now calls on the judgment of the Lord to judge Abram for not doing something about the situation. And of course, Abram, he then passively sits back in his recliner and he passes the book back to Sarai and says, well, you go and and deal with the problem. She's in your power. And so Sarai does that, just that. She takes the power in her hand and she drives her once hopeful surrogate away by punishing her harshly. What a mess. What a mess. I think the key phrase to characterize Sarai in this episode is what Abraham says in verse 6. He says, Behold, your servant is in your power. He's in your power. Or we might put it more literally, she's in the palm of your hand. She's in the palm of your hand. You can do to her as you wish. She's characterized Sarai as trying to grasp her own destiny, take control of her own destiny, even at the cost of her godliness, rather than remembering that God sets the agenda, that God has a plan, and God is going to keep it. She's forgotten he's the I, the I will God that we've been thinking about this whole series. At the end of verse 6, 
um, Hagar um, and her child, they are lost. The, the plan B for Sarai has totally failed because she didn't see God's hand at work in her life. When things weren't working out the way she hoped, she just couldn't see God at work. And so she did what was right in her own eyes with terrible consequences. When are we tempted to doubt God's words and turn to our own schemes, even if those schemes might go against what the Lord has said? In those moments when things aren't working out the way we want them to, we're not to accuse God, accuse him of doing wrong, and we're not to try and fight him in that situation, but rather we are to talk to him, acknowledge him as the one in control of all things. It's totally okay to say to God, look, God, I have absolutely no idea why this is happening to me. I have no idea why this is happening to me, but I do know two things. One, you are in control of everything. I know you're in control of everything. I know you're in control of all things, and you have a much better view of your big eternal plan than I do. You're in control of everything, and you have a much better view of your plan than I do, and so I am going to trust you, even though this is really, really hard for me. And I want you to help me, even if the way you help me isn't the way I would choose for you to help me. I'm going to trust your work. Because we all have difficulties in our lives. We all know that feeling of things not working out the way we hoped. We all know that feeling of, of deep frustration, of things going wrong. And the question is, the key question is, how do we respond to God in those moments? How do we respond to God in those moments? How quickly do we look to God when things aren't working out the way we hoped? Now, the remainder of our narrative, it's going to switch from, from Sarai and the way she handled things. And it's going to switch over to focus on Hagar. Now, Hagar, after the way she's been treated, she's heading back to Egypt. She's heading home when the messenger of the Lord finds her on the road. And this is what he says to her from verse 7. The angel of the Lord, he found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing my mistress Sarai. And the Lord, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, Hagar, she finds herself in the wilderness. She probably felt completely alone, um, like no one cared, and that no one was listening to her. But the Lord found her there in her moment of desperation, and it would have been a moment of deep desperation out there in the wilderness. And he had seen and heard everything that had happened to her. She wasn't alone. He had seen and heard everything. And he does three important things in response in that moment. He calls Hagar by name, 
to Abram and Sarah, she'd always been the servant. But the angel of the Lord, he comes to her and he says, Hagar. He gives her a name, personal. He knows her. He gives her the dignity of being called by name. And then second, he calls her to repentance. Now, that might surprise us a bit if we're thinking about what Hagar's been through. She's been through a horrible situation, and nothing in the text attempts to justify that at all. The way Abram and Sarai have treated her is wrong. They should not have done that. And because she's in this horrible situation, she probably didn't want to hear that call to return to Sarai that she receives. But she duly listens to the Lord, and she goes. Because Hagar, she, she had sinned by treating Sarai in the way she had. She shouldn't have treated her mistress in that way. And she had to put a stop to that. And the author of Genesis has been really uh, diligent in highlighting the proper nature of the relationship between the individuals in the narrative. Because Hagar, she's described in verse 1 as the Egyptian servant. And then Sarai, she calls her uh, my servant several times. You see that in verse 2. Sarai is described as Hagar's mistress in our fourth verse. Abram calls Hagar your servant when addressing Sarai. And then even the messenger of the Lord in verses 7 to 9, he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, return to your mistress. Hagar, servant of Sarai, return to your mistress. Now, you might think there's a lot of redundant information in those verses. There's lots of stuff we're told that we don't really need to know because we already know it. The author's there putting the repetition in to reinforce the proper nature of those relationships, the way they were meant to function before sin came in and broke them. There's something really unique and specific about this call to, to return, for Hagar to be called to return back to Sarai. Um, we can't generalize that in cases of modern abuse. It would be really dangerous to use the text in that way um, as a way to respond to abuse today. This text, it doesn't teach us how, that we should tolerate abuse. Hagar, the reason she's called to, to turn back to Abram and Sarai is because she had been taken out of Egypt by Abram and Sarai. And she'd been brought into the covenant family of God. She'd been taken from Egypt and brought into the covenant family of God. And she was meant to be with the God who sees her, not with the idols of Egypt. And it wasn't Sarai's right to jealously deny Hagar that place in the family of God. It wasn't Sarai's right to jealously drive her out from the family of God that she'd been welcomed into. Yes, Hagar should not have treated Sarai in the way she did, but Sarai had no right to shut Hagar out. And the fact that the Lord finds her on the road, on the way back to the idols of Egypt, and turns her around, shows, it testifies to Hagar's place, her welcome in the family of God. Now, if the treatment of Hagar, if that raises any difficulties for you personally, do come have a chat with me afterwards. Come and chat to any of the ministry team. I'd be very happy to talk about Hagar uh, more, if that would be helpful. But just returning back to the narrative now, the Lord's found Hagar on the way, and he's done three important things. He's called her by name. He's called her to repent, to turn around and come back to him. And third, he makes amazing covenant promises to Hagar. Um, Hagar was a lowly Egyptian servant girl 
in the eyes of Sarai. But the Lord said, he, was go- he said he was going to multiply Hagar's offspring so that they could not be numbered. Her child was to be called Ishmael, which means God listens. You see that down in your footnote. She listened. He listens. The Lord listens. The Lord, he finds Hagar in her moment of total isolation, total desperation. And he gives her dignity. He calls her by name. He calls her to come back to his family, to live his way. And he gives her the promise of great generations that would come from her lowly line. The Lord is incredibly gracious in meeting Hagar's needs on the road that day. Then in the moment, that would have been her lowest point. Hagar sees who the Lord is. And she responds to him with praise. Hagar, the Egyptian servant girl, becomes the first woman in the Bible to praise God. That's a beautiful thing. The first woman in the Bible to praise God. Here's what she says in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here, I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called, literally, the well of the living one who sees me. Again, you'll see that in your footnote. The well who was called, the well of the living one who sees me. It's a beautiful moment as Hagar has her eyes opened to behold the Lord who has been there for her this whole time. And she can finally see him. And that was true, despite what Hagar had been through, and without minimizing her suffering or ignoring that. But it meant that even in her suffering, the Lord was there, and he saw her, and he looked after her, and he listened to her. Now, the name of Ishmael, he pays witness to that. Verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, God listens. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore, God listens to Abram. For the rest of her life, um, Hagar would have a reminder of the I will God who sees her, every time she called her son. You can imagine it. God listens. It's time for dinner. Good morning. God listens. Good night. God listens every day, every time she called him. Hagar had seen the Lord in her afflictions and would now have a daily reminder right in front of her that he was and always would be with her. Now, if we, um, if we zoom back a bit and we consider both half of our readings as a whole, it does raise the question, why was Sarai unable to conceive? But Hagar could. And I recognize that could be a really difficult question that someone reading this narrative could be asking. And I think it's just really helpful to see that the text doesn't try to answer that. It simply puts the two facts 
side by side. And it draws our attention instead to the response of the two women towards God in that difficulty. Without minimizing the difficulty, it draws our attention to their response to God in those difficulties. Hagar looks at God and says, you are a God of seeing. He saw Hagar and he saw Sarai, if only she'd recognized it. And he sees you. And he knows how hard it is for you. And he cares for you. And he looks after you. Now, it might be really hard for us to accept that. You might be sitting there thinking, well, David, you have absolutely no idea what I've been through and what I'm going through. And you are probably right. I probably don't. But God does. God does. He knows. He knows and sees everything. He knows what you're going through and what you've been through completely through and through. He is the living one who sees you. The name of that well, he is the living one who sees you. And he's someone who you can talk to and someone you can listen to and someone you can find comfort in with total confidence that he understands in a way that maybe no one else does, but he understands. Unlike Sarai, Hagar saw the Lord even in her afflictions. All Sarai can say is, the Lord afflicted me. But Hagar can say, the Lord sees me. The Lord sees me. And I guess that leaves us with the question, will we see the Lord in our time of affliction and waiting and frustration? Will we see the Lord who sees us? God has a plan A. He knows what's best for us. He's told us his plan and he told, he's told us how it ends. He's told us the end of the plan already. And isn't it wonderful to know how the story ends, to know how the plan ends, even if we can't feel that right now? The question is, will we get impatient? Will we get disbelieving? Will we say, I've waited long enough for this. I can't wait for God to get his acts together on this. I've got to take action now with what is in my hand, with the power that's in my hand. Will we say that? Or will we see the living one who sees us? Will we wait and be patient and trust? And will we pray to him and will we praise him when things aren't going well, when it's really, really hard to do that? Will we still praise him? When your body isn't working the way you want it to, and you can see the loved ones suffering, and you're grieving someone who's really precious to you. And on those dark days, when you feel at your lowest, will you open your mouth and like Hagar, praise God saying, you are a God of seeing, 
I have seen him who looks after me. This then is a text for sufferers. So the sufferer, this text says that God sees you in your suffering. It encourages you to call out to him in your times of distress, and it implores you not to turn away from God's plan A when it is really hard. God has made a plan that features this upside-down kingdom full of lowly saints who will suffer and sin throughout their life, but who will one day see the Lord in glory unimaginable. They will be with him at peace forever by the blood of the Lord Jesus shed at the cross for you. That is a beautiful plan. That is the Lord who sees you. And my prayer for all of us is that we will be those who have eyes to see him who looks after us. Let me pray for us as we close our time together. Lord God, help us to believe that you see everything, that you hear everything, and that you know each difficulty we face in our lives. Lord, please cause us to turn to you when things are really difficult and when things aren't working out the way we planned. Help us to talk to you and to listen to you rather than trying to fix things in our own time and in our own way. Please, Lord, open our eyes to see who you are. Lord, keep your promises to us fresh in our minds each day. And make us quick to pray to you in the pain of our trials and our sufferings. You are a God of seeing. Help us to believe that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.